One of the great things about hosting a podcast about books that features a new episode every week is that in the beginning of each season, I don't know where my reading journey will take me, but I'm game for the mystery. Joining Book of the Month is kind of the same thing. You know you're heading into new territory, and it's going to be an adventure. Book of the Month is a subscription that helps readers discover new books and helps writers by promoting emerging authors alongside established ones. Here's how it works. Each month, Book of the Month members get to choose from a curated selection of new and early release books. Your pick gets shipped right to your door, and shipping is always free. There's so much excitement knowing that one of your picks just might be that next book to make it into your top 10 most favorite books ever list. And if you like to listen to your books, there are options for you. Book of the Month just launched a curated audiobook option, and you can listen to your selection directly in the app. Here's what's in store for March. Annie Bott by Sierra Greer. Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez, plus several other titles. I chose the memoir Hereafter by Amy Lynn because I'm interested in how people deal with grief and bring their insights to the page. For a limited time, you can get your first book of the month for just $9.99 using the code CHIRP. You can sign up at bookofthemonth.com. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how, through craft, that idea is articulated on the page. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Lydia Yuknovich, author of the novel Thrust. Underneath the cool fiction questions are real questions about who we are and why we act the way we do and what stories we need to carry and what stories we need to lay down. We'll be back with Lydia Yuknovich after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. First Draft is now in its ninth year of production. Nine years. That's over 3,200 days I've been hustling to create this show. Hustling to get up at 5 a.m. to do interviews. Hustling at midnight to edit a show in time for it to go live on a Monday. It takes hustle to do this show. And that's why I'm asking you to please support First Draft, a dialogue on writing on Patreon. You can find out more at patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This show wouldn't be here without others like you who converted from fans to supporters Plus, you can feel good about supporting conversations like the one you're about to hear. And with your donation, you are saying yes to continuing this space for writers and readers and those curious about the artistic process. So let's be honest. There is so much free content out there, and I know I'm competing with it. And what you're listening to is free, but it is not without expense and hard costs and labor to make. And don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is a labor of love. 
But all told, from scheduling, preparation, reading time, interviewing, editing, and finalizing each episode, we're talking about a minimum of 15 hours each episode. Other expenses are also involved, equipment, subscriptions to interview platforms, editing software, hosting services for the sound, and a website for the archive. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind you to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. This takes hardcore commitment on my side, so I'm asking you if you appreciate this show, I'd love to feel your love. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, and you can donate on a monthly or annual basis. In gratitude for your support, my patrons receive extra benefits, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, writing tips from my guests, and more. Once you become a patron, you never have to hear me say this pitch again, and there are no ads in the beginning of the show. So whatever you can afford is welcome. Please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters to donate today. Please stay tuned. At the end of the show, I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being with me here today, right now, in this moment. I'm really appreciative. And on to the show. My guest today is nonfiction and fiction writer Lydia Yugnovich, author of eight books, including a memoir, The Chronology of Water, the novels The Book of Joan, The Small Backs of Children, and the short story collection Verge. She is also the author of The Misfits Manifesto, based on her TED Talk, and a critical book on war and narrative called Allegories of Violence. Her writing has appeared in publications including the Iowa Review, Electric Lit, and The Sun, among others. She lives in Oregon and loves to swim. Her new novel is called Thrust and tells the story of Lysve, a motherless girl living in the late 21st century. She is known as a carrier because she can harness the power of meaningful objects and carry them through time. The book is set in a fallen city known as the Brook, where nearly everything is underwater. Lysvake discovers a talisman that mysteriously connects her with a series of characters from the past two centuries, and her journey asks the reader to contemplate issues of identity, climate change, vulnerability, judgment, freedom, and ancestral stories, while challenging the idea of marginalization and forgotten histories. We began the discussion with Lydia Yuknovich reading an excerpt from Thrust. I don't know how to talk about what it means to be haunted by other bodies, by family stories, by ancestral sorrow, by other experiences from the past. Maybe all of us carry the voices and bodies of everyone who's come before since the dawn of time. Maybe some of us carry them differently. The story of all those bodies my one body carries did not begin, nor will it end, in the belly of a boat meant to make meat of me. I won't let it. But the weight of the suffering threads through me and beyond. 
Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? I mean, that's basically in the voice of your main character, and you're going to have to forgive my ignorance because I don't know how to pronounce her name. I've heard various pronunciations, which sort of delights me because it's a play with language, which is part of what the story is about. So, um, but one way to say it is Laisve, <laughs> and that's in Lithuanian. Um, but even Lithuanian people pronounce it differently in different regions. So there's that. Um, that paragraph is a little bit dipping into the idea that we all have origin stories and ancestors and, you know, people we came from. And that's a heavy weight uh, for almost all of us. And when we try to track back into those stories, we often find things that are weird or awful or too heavy or painful or brutal, uh, depending on the person. And then when I expand that idea out one layer, you know, groups of people are carrying those kinds of weights and difficulties and um, questions and longings inside their own origin stories. And so I was trying to make language or come up with a poetics that sort of not got the story straight or anything, but just touched this idea of a longing for both tracing a story backwards in time, but also letting go of it. Like, what if we could be other stories than the ones we inherited? How do you let loose? You know, so I was trying to press on language to try and find both a longing for, for origin, but also a letting go, a release. Um, and so sometimes paragraphs like that would come out because I was trying to do something nearly impossible. <laughs> seems like in a way when you talk about it like that that what we are is really walking stories that that's oh yeah that's we're just like stories wrapped up in some skin and muscle and bone absolutely you know I believe that that each of us is walking around carrying everything that ever happened to us whether it emerges or not consciously and we tend to think of bodies as the physical thing that gets us through life or, you know, this, the physical thing stuff happens to. But you know that I think of us, too, as story carriers. And so clearly I got really obsessed with that idea of, you know, what would a story carrier look like? <laughs> what would their name be? And uh, in what ways do we carry stories differently? from each other. So when I interviewed Susan Orlean on her book, The Library Book, which was about the fire at the LA library. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She told me that there's like an African saying that when someone dies, they say um, his library is burned or her mm -hmm. library is burned, meaning basically mm -hmm. like all the stories and everything they know is gone. But at the same time, kind of what you're talking about is also this like DNA biological carrying on. And while the, all the small details and the minutia of our lives go with us, 
mm-hmm. it also gets carried on if we have progeny. Right. Well, I don't know about the progeny part because another thing I was interested in exploring is the idea, you know, fiction is so great and the novel is such a great space because you can ask what if over and over and over again. And it's probably why I love it so much. So one of the what ifs for me was what if every individual existence is really just a particulate of larger existence that includes the cosmos and the planet and the oceans and the plants and the animals. And what if our biologic histories were loosened up and let go and and we became particulates of this more giant existence? That question was definitely up for me as I went through characters who were letting go of biological binaries or biological necessities or their ties to bloodlines or even DNA. Because, you know, Lysbake keeps asking questions like, how come I was born human? Why couldn't I have been born a pig or (laughs) something else? And it's again that delight in the what if, you know, and underneath the cool fiction questions are real questions about, you know, who we are and why we act the way we do and what stories we need to carry and what stories we need to lay down. And so Lysve, she is at the center of your book and she is a young girl when we open and I think it's about 2079 and she lives in this other world kind of called the brook where everything is kind of underwater. Like we, we definitely get the sense that climate change has changed the world and she ends up being this kind of time traveler through the medium of water, which I know water is so important to you. So we'll talk about that too. But she she is a carrier. She is a carrier of stories and objects and all the rules are also loosened in this world where she can talk to turtles and she can talk to animals and she can travel in time to bring stories, like stories that can help save people, like whether it's like spiritually or emotionally or or bring them hope and she lost a brother and a mother and her father she has to leave to go travel because she's living in a time of raids and tyranny and um, so she is like this messenger and you're also highlighting these times like when the Statue of Liberty was being made when the railroads were being made by all the Chinese people that came over uh, times of, of native where native people might have been always <laughs> taken advantage of so you pick certain times in history as well so you you're mentioning this what if so what was the first what if question I don't think you missed anything crucial just the way you asked that i love hearing what story threads and waves were you know surfaced for you that's just beautiful to hear there's an important thread i would add about a woman who's sort of a a sexuality entrepreneur (laughs) um who is kind of weaving her way through the story of what is a woman in her time and um, trying to unravel that definition, trying to loosen it up uh, and 
in early versions of feminist history or suffragette history. Um, but the, the sort of um, idea that we're all stories that we were talking about a second ago, I uh, took that literally and um, decided that that would mean all of existence is a series of threaded stories that weave together or tangle or not or break or um, come apart. And so my representations across time or space, um, I wasn't trying to really represent time travel. I wasn't really trying to represent uh, some kind of, you know, unreal or surreal or speculative space. I was trying to describe our present tense. And one way to reach people is to tell them fables or fairy tales or the language of that, which seems to go into the listener easier than politics or um, theology or the things we are mad at each other about. So um, I was using the language that is sort of magical here and there to attempt to represent something I think is urgent, current, present tense, and try to give it some precision. So um, again, no, not ambitious at all. <laughs> yeah, and I think what's really interesting about that, especially like hearing you say that you weren't necessarily thinking about time travel, because it does seem like I would never I would not say that this book is a time travel book. I would say it's a way to look at time in a almost one dimensional framework that, for instance, if you go and look at the Statue of Liberty, part of the story of the Statue of Liberty is all the hands that made it and all the lives that made it and all the places they came from and all the places that their ancestors came from and that your character is just trying to access like the cacophony of time all at once and speak to how like the present day where the Statue of Liberty is actually underwater speaks to the time when it was just being created. You just made me really happy that if you just say that to me, um, it's like a reader heard me or something <laughs> that was so beautiful and that's so true to how it feels the story I am trying to tell that was um just gives me so much gratitude and it makes me so happy to hear that uh but yes it's it's not so much a time traveler story as it is asking the reader might might we look at time differently and our place within time differently. We already know from real science <laughs> that time is not linear, but we don't we don't allow ourselves to feel it quite as often as we might, or you know, ask what that might mean for this state of being we call human, because uh, it's kind of scary, um, and nobody really knows what that would be like. But if you've noticed, um, a lot of our contemporary art, film, painting, storytelling, 
is is touching more and more often the idea of say parallel universes or time moving forward and backward in somebody's actual life, not just like woo spaceships and magic. Um, so it's it's sort of up for us literally too. Uh, and so I'm just joining a stream of my time that I'm here as a as an artist. It's sort of up for us. So looking at time this way and writing this story, did it did it change your thinking at all when you were writing in this sort of expansive, elastic way about time? Yeah, I'll tell you, there was a book that um, blew the top of my head off and influenced me mightily um and i can't pronounce his name well but he's one of the opening quotations his last name is magnus and i can kind of pronounce that uh but his book i think it's called of time and water and it's a nonfiction scientific book but it's he's a brilliant storyteller and partly what he was telling the story of his time and partly how he told that was talking to people about water and the rise in sea level and how that's um, a kind of epic kind of way of talking about time. And in interview after interview, he keeps telling the story that um, the oceans are rising at a rapid pace in a single lifetime instead of over several epochs. And it's like a hundred year story that used to be billions of years story. And he's trying to like bring it down to a language people will understand by going into storytelling mode and talking about, you know, a grandmother sitting at a table telling a story to her grandkid about what the water's doing it takes it out of that rarefied science realm and brings it down to storytelling. And so seeing him do that, I thought, oh, I have kin. I have a kindred spirit, even though I'm a novelist. But here's the thing. I believe that while we're here, it's our job to find where our different um, threads intersect where the scientist and the novelist and the theologian and the mother and the activist, like wherever those threads make an interstice, I'm interested. And so in some ways I structured the book that way, that these threads occasionally cross each other or weave. And on the page, I tried to make it kind of do that. I don't know if that's noticeable, but. I'm interested in that idea. Then there, it doesn't matter so much if you have a hard agree or disagree or you hate each other. It just matters that your story's crossed and you can look at it and say, how did they cross? You know, like my Republican neighbor who also had an abortion. How did our stories cross? And let's talk about that, not how much we hate each other and don't agree with each other. The publishing industry is a system. Books are mirrors in people's experiences. And in season two of Missing Pages, 
We'll take a look at what happens when an old system faces new challenges. This is what happens when you involve money. I'm Beth Ann Patrick, literary critic, writer, and your host of season two of the Missing Pages podcast, a show that gives you a ringside seat to some of the juiciest conflicts in the book world. In season two, we're turning up the dial. She was in pretty much a stratosphere all around. The term is academic fraud. Teachers in Florida had to cover up their bookshelves for fear of getting sanctioned or fired. We'll dig into these stories with industry insiders and talk to authors like Jody Picot for their firsthand experiences. You can childproof your world, but you can't worldproof your child. It's time we find these missing pages and return them to their stories. Listen and subscribe to season two wherever you get your podcasts. And what did you discover maybe about that place where all the stories cross? Because I'm hearing you saying that in a way time has sped up, that this is not the grandmother, this is not our grandmother's world where the the water is slowly rising. And so it seems in some ways that the the conversation is speeding up. So what happens when all these threads converge? Well, one thing to help us not be just devastated and brutalized is the idea that stories can change at any moment in time and space. We don't have to keep living the stories we've been told about who we are. And it, it actually takes very little for us to turn and change the story. And we don't have to wait for giant event to catastrophically lurch us into another way of being. It, it could happen in smaller ways if we could begin to look at the places where storytelling might change, where it becomes calcified or solidified, or it's this is the story no matter what, we're doomed. <laughs> we're just dead in the water sorry for that really bad pun um but the possibility space is well if stories can be you know untold and retold they're alive they're moving we can change them i don't have to be the daughter of an abusive father to move through my life i can tell stories differently even having come from that and told that story it's the nature of storytelling that it composts and reemerges as something else. I know I sound a little abstract, but I mean it literally. Well, and it's also scary to let go of the stories you know. I mean, it's scary. That can be really frightening. Um, but, you know, in the time I have left here, I don't want to be obsessively clinging to stories that have brought us nothing but pain and othering. I, I, I'm, I'm scared, but I'm willing to loosen my grip and just enter the free flow of storytelling. That's a global set of possibilities. Um, and if, you know, I'm willing to let go of all of them. I've already let go of American wife, mother, woman, those stories, I'm willing to let them become particulates back into the ocean and see what else we can come up with. So what did you learn, if anything, about actually the craft of writing from writing 
such an expansive story that had, I mean, structurally we can talk about it, but it just, you know, when you're talking about all these threads and, and looking at time in a different way, did it change how you think about craft? And I think when I talked to you last time, you were maybe writing a book on craft. Um, that book is still underway. Um, it It's taking a rest right this second. But I can definitely answer the question. It's not that I didn't suspect that going even deeper into the polyphonic space of storytelling, where there are many voices instead of the one. It's not that I didn't suspect that would be thrilling and teach me really important things about staying away from the mono story. But I did not know how deeply changed I would be from the actual process of writing a voice that keeps adapting or turning or fragmenting or multiplying. It actually changed how I think about novels and how I think about nonfiction um, in this way to try to get more specific. When I'm trying to tell the story of my own life or of an invented world, uh, I have to look in the periphery. I have to look behind the foreground. I have to look at the environment around the events and the experiences, not as setting or backdrop, but as participant in the experience. I might have to talk to more animals than I have in the past. <laughs> I might have to understand my own subjectivity as interlinked or particulate, that word I used earlier, instead of ego center, you know, like I shall represent the me story, <laughs> uh, just to exaggerate it. Um, and these are concepts that I've been dappling with or asking questions about for several years now. But um, this book taught me to not be a weenie about it. So anyway, Lizzie, it kind of changed me as a writer forever because I don't want to tell the kinds of stories I started with, even though they're interesting to me, they're part of who I am as a writer, but that's not the portal that opened up. That's not you know, where I want to take writing from here. Um, this book feels like I either set sail in a new ship I didn't know about, or I dove into an ocean I didn't know about, or maybe I leapt into space I didn't know about. And it's, it's really thrilling to be this age and feel like I'm embarking instead of landing or ending. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm curious if that if if that new way of thinking, if you ever feel like language can't keep up with that, that um, that you bump against any sort of boundaries with language. And, you know, you talk a little bit about languages that have been under siege in the book of mostly native languages that are lost. So I'm wondering if you've ever just found the limitations of of language. You did have some pictures in the book. 
<laughs> yes, I, I'm very happy about that. I would love it if there were even more, but I'm happy some got in there. That's exciting to me. Um, I run into the limits of language all the time, but then I look at a poem or a painting or a dancer and, you know, an art form that maybe isn't language based in the same way. And it's such a relief to understand that artistic expression is omnipresent, is everywhere, always, all the time, before we were born and after we die. And so um, one needn't get bogged down or repressed by the limits of language because expression itself is always firing and generating meanings and passions and interpretations and expressions. So um, I'm kind of stuck with language because I, I don't know how to do anything else. <laughs> but as you've noticed, I'm often trying to break language down and rearrange it to see, are there other ways of um, making expression? And I'm not alone in that. That's all of literary history. You can find other people interested in that idea, but I'm definitely one of them. <laughs> Does structure ever help you with that? So in this book, while you had your main, you had a few that were major narratives that kept coming back, like the ones that you were talking about, this um, Aurora, this uh, sort of sexual, I can't remember what term you use for her. I called her a sexual entrepreneur, but I, you know, it's okay with me, however she's interpreted. Yes. She's a one-legged sexual entrepreneur and her, hers, uh, part of the story is in letters. And then you have, um, you have little sections where you talk about, um, I think ethnography and mm -hmm. the, a little section that explains, for instance, maybe a Chinese railroad worker or something like that. And then you have, um, the main, the main story, um, which, which all have titles. Um, so I'm wondering if somehow structure also helped you both contain, but also explode language or storytelling. Yes, absolutely. Um, not just in this book, but definitely amplified in this book is an obsession I have that, um, History is like a basket of artifacts, little strips of paper or little objects or things people said or did or legal documents or photographs, like this beautiful giant basket with all these artifacts in it. And that people with power end up giving us official versions of history is irrelevant and gross to me. What's interesting to me is that the basket exists and anyone could sift through the artifacts or do an archaeological, you know, some kind of uh, search or journey into these, these particles of who we've been and tell a diff completely different story than the ones we've inherited. That idea has obsessed me forever. That's what I think history is. It's a in in a philosophic sense, I think it was Walter Benjamin who called um, history a pile of debris. I think I have a softer understanding of it as a, a really pretty basket <laughs> with artifacts in it. Um, but it's also come 
from a direct sense I have as a person in the world who came from a fractured or fragmented past, you know, with trauma, and also a family lineage in Lithuania that had its own fragmentation. You know, it's very personal to me that some of us, maybe all of us, can only retrieve what's happened to us in pieces. And so structurally, I set about to make these kinds of pieces or artifacts to remind the reader that you got to get more pieces to get any kind of story to hold. Um, and you can't leave these pieces on the outside out. And so I'd say that, that structurally I had that in mind as how to make a container. I love that idea too, of seeing the world in pieces and also knowing just a tiny bit about your history with water. And that water is really the medium in this book that allows the, the transfer of stories, the transfer of time and water is not really something that can be in pieces. I mean, it's so like amorphous. It kind of fills what you put it in. You can't like really pick it up in pieces. So I wanted to ask you about the juxtaposition of seeing stories in pieces, but also like your love for water and how you used water. Yeah, that's a great question. I love that question. In some ways it's akin to the relationship in physics between a wave and particle. I mean, they coexist and they're not, um, they're not the same thing, but they're not uh, other either. And so here's the answer. When you look out at the ocean or get in it, um, the ocean is miraculous to me because it's carrying alive things and dead things and alive things and dead things in motion always all the time and then sometimes the ocean will will take disparate particulates and you know make a rock so this rock looks like it's whole it looks like an object that's whole but really it's made from little tiny pieces of things all over the world and it found its form on a beach I stepped on and picked it up in this hole. But when I put these rocks I have too many of back in the ocean, they're gonna eventually disintegrate back into particles and become sand again, all over the world. So the ocean, as you've noticed, is the conduit or the space of continual transformation. And for me, that's just true in terms of scientifically true, <laughs> but also the world's greatest metaphor for the imagination and its possibilities in us. And so, so water, as you see what I'm saying? Yes, it is the thing always in motion and never taking form like we do or a rock does, but it's also the thing that carries us and transforms us and changes us and takes us apart and puts us back together, et cetera, which shows up in the story too. I cleverly planted like five versions. <laughs> it's not subtle. <laughs> if someone came up to you and said, how, how hard was this book to write compared to your other books? Because you are looking at the world and storytelling as, as a new way. And I, when I was reading it, I was like, this seems like a really hard book to have written. 
Yeah, I would put it at the zenith of difficult, but they were all difficult differently. Does that make sense? Um, this one had a lot of research, more research than ever for anything I've ever written, including my dissertation for graduate school. <laughs> so that was hard and wonderful. I loved it. I missed my calling. I should have been a researcher. I loved it. Um, my idea was bigger than I could handle. It overwhelmed me. It was like I loved it and I knew I wanted to do it, but it terrified me because it was bigger than I had worked with before, kind of the way you're saying. And so I thought, well, what if <laughs> I still am worried? What if I can can't do it. <laughs> or what if I fuck it up? Um, or, you know, like you have these lightning strands in your hands and it's the best feeling ever, but what if, what if it kills you or you can't do it or you can't make it play out the way it is in your head. But that's really always the case in any time an artist sits down to try and make something that different kind of what if like, what if it kills me or I can't, I just can't handle all the electricity of it. Um, that's the space of making art, I think. But this one for sure was um, a leap that <laughs> we'll see what happens. <laughs> did you do anything differently to make it happen? Like, did you map it out on a wall? Did you like only write certain sections on Sundays? Like how did you tackle it? Uh, the part that was similar to other times I've made things process wise was a lot of it was written in kind of like a fever dream state. That part was quite similar. Um, I did make a wall to map it out, but I've done that before. Um, I had many tokens, talismans, photographs, scraps of things, drawings, um, hair, bones, rocks all around me. It took about four years um, time-wise. And the thing that was hard for me toward the end of it was um, I had created this gorgeous chaos and I was having trouble focusing it so humans could understand it. And my husband brought a whiteboard into my office and I nearly killed him because I'm anti whiteboard. Um, and he, we argued about it. Like just the whiteboard being in the room was, I was arguing about. And, um, but he had read the whole manuscript. He knew what the story I was trying to tell was. He knew how to get it out. And he said, and I rejected an outline, a linear outline. I'm like, I'm not doing a fucking outline. And he had the brilliance to say, okay, keep the whiteboard, but we're going to use these six colored pens. See, very seductive. And we're going to make a bubble chart. We're going to put all the ideas in these beautiful round bubble circles that are all different, beautiful colors. And I'm like, we are. Like, so like he tricked me <laughs> and the beautiful thing about it was why it worked quote unquote is that 
after we made a, a drawing or, a, you know, a pictorial version of it in these circles or bubbles, and I stood back, I could see it. I could see the main themes. And if that hadn't happened, I would have been lost a lot longer inside the ocean version of it. I want to ask you about the word thrust. And if that was something that came to you right away, what I, well, I'm going to ask you and then I'm going to tell you what I love about the word. Okay. Well, it came from two places. One is it's a, it's a perfect word for me for that arm hand torch of the Statue of Liberty. So that's one place. Um, but that's not what we usually call that. We call it a beacon. We call it a light. We call it liberty leading the people, etc. cetera. Um, thrust is better for me. But then the second one is, of course, um, me trying to interrupt a sort of gendered understanding of that word as, you know, thrust being a male sexual, um, to be crass about it, um, term. But in this story, it's absolutely attached to Aurora and her body and her sexuality. And so it's a little bit of a reclamation of, uh, you know, very intense female sexuality with a thrust much bigger than the story we've understood um, about male thrusting. <laughs> so it's kind of those two things rated together. Um, so now you spill it. So what you were talking about earlier and what we were talking about about particles and DNA and not even to have necessarily a progeny to, to have things carry forward, that there's more momentum. I was thinking like the first thing maybe you think about when you hear thrust is like that final push, you know, that force. But that force cannot happen without all those small little movements leading right. up to that. And that all of this like DNA all from the primordial ooze all the way into like whatever it manifested into that thrust is not a singular action, but the completion of so much like valiance. That is so beautiful and so right on. I want to stand up and clap. <laughs> yeah. That, yeah. And so it's not just the one action. It, it took everything before it and everything after it for it to exist connected to motion. You know, not just the one heroic thing, but yes, yes, yes. I love that. I think, too, along the same lines and themes of, of your deconstruction of story and trying to take away kind of all these labels, um, you did have a story in there about a young boy, uh, Mikal, is that? Mikael. Mikael, yeah. who, who was seen as this, um, like, murderer, juvie, like someone in juvie is how we would yep. see him. And he had this whole softer side to his heart. But if, if the story was only told about him being in juvie, we would never understand how much love he has to give and what right. he wants to protect in the world. And that's right. You gave that opportunity to him who was also like a very young man. Yes, that a character. I'm glad we're mentioning that character. 
Mikael as a character is hugely important to me for two reasons. One, I taught at a community college for almost 20 years, and I met many, many, many young men who were carrying around stories that were oppressing their beauty and, and uh, putting them in danger. Um, and I met many, many young men who were coming out of juvie or coming out of jail or coming out of conservative families that were crushing their spirits. So it's a bit of an homage to all these young men I met who were so beautiful. Um, and I have a son, which means I'm not willing to give up on boys or men, even if I think we need new language to talk about ourselves and new stories about what being male might mean. Um, so thank you for noticing him. That character is a big deal to me. Before we get into the final questions, because you just talked about that, and I have one other little paragraph I'd love for you to read because it's so beautiful. Oh, sure. It's on the top of page 217, and I think it fits with a lot of what we talked about. Could stories break free of stasis and equilibrium give way to bursts of radical change? Could stories themselves become extinct? Could history? Could stories carry us differently? Could children branch off away from their ancestors like a body disassembled and reassembled in an otherwhere across time and space? That was another paragraph I just thought brought so much together. I'm all about the idea that our children are more than our spawn. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? This is a paragraph from Virginia Woolf's book, The Waves. The sun had not yet risen. The sea was indistinguishable from the sky, except that the sea was slightly creased as if a cloth had wrinkles in it. Gradually, as the sky whitened, a dark line lay on the horizon, dividing the sea from the sky, and the gray cloth became barred with thick strokes moving one after another beneath the surface, following each other, pursuing each other perpetually. As they neared the shore, each bar rose, heaped itself, broke, and swept a thin veil of white water across the sand. The wave paused and then drew out again, sighing like a sleeper whose breath comes and goes unconsciously. Gradually, the dark bar on the horizon became clear as if the sediment in an old wine bottle had sunk and left the glass green. Behind it, too, the sky cleared as if the white sediment there had sunk, or as if the arm of a woman couched beneath the horizon had raised a lamp and flat bars of white, green, and yellow spread across the sky, like the blades of a fan. Do you want to share why you uh, chose that? Because it makes me ball my face off. The poetics uh, and her insistence that language would have to ship and move around and be painterly in order to represent the experience accurately and that she um, was unflinching in creating those languages, uh, even if it looked different than everybody else's. Can you read a passage from something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. 
Sure. Um, this is the very opening to thrust, which I won't read much of it. I'll just read a little. Missy, I, re I rewrote this for years, like in so many different <laughs> forms um, on the cutting room floor. And um, I'll probably never be completely satisfied, but the idea that we might have to invent languages over again or storytelling over again is what the struggle was. And I'll just read a little bit. We dreamed we were hers. The body of us thought that because we built her, we belonged to her. We built her in pieces from our bodies, from the stories we held and the stories before that and the stories that might come. She arrived by boat in pieces. That's it. Do you want to say anything else? Just for anyone else who struggles over and over and over again, just to try and touch that storytelling sweet spot. I'm at your back. I'm writing alongside you and the struggle is worth it. Where do you write? Well, I've recently moved. So for the first time in my life, I live kind of next to the ocean and I have a writing room. And there are more rocks than anything else in the room. <laughs> and there, you see the books, but on the shelf underneath the books are plates and plates and plates of rocks and shells and little dead things. <laughs> and to my left and to my right and underneath me that you mercifully cannot see, same thing. So um, I'll let you know when the rocks overtake <laughs> What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I still move to water. Uh, and in this case, that's ocean and river at this point. And I just get in it or sit near it and immerse myself in the idea that they're older than me, they're bigger than me, and they don't care what I weigh or if I'm smart or pretty or any of those things. They just let me be with them. They just let me exist. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I was going to say my husband, which is still generally true. And also my sister, which I told you last time. But now I, I have an imaginary friend, which I have not had since I was a kid. So I'll just leave it at that. How have you dealt with rejection? I don't care anymore. <laughs> I'm, it's going to happen on the daily. And I'm the age I am right now. It has ceased to make it onto the list of things I actually care about. I'm, I don't have enough time and energy to care about that anymore. So it has no value to me. And what is your favorite word? The one that hasn't been invented yet. The one that's coming. Thank you so much for your time again. I will start crying. I love you. If you like today's show with Lydia Yuknovich, author of the novel Thrust, check out my previous interview with her, where we discuss her short story collection, Verge. You can find that interview in the entire First Draft archive of more than 350 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. 
Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips from my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Elizabeth Strout, Carlos Allende, and George Saunders. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.